This is Internet Marketing. Brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.com. This is Internet Marketing. Uh, now, before we roll, a request. We'd like some input on how we can improve the podcast. And we're running a survey over on the Site Visibility website. Take about five minutes of your time. It'd be really helpful to us because it will help us to continue to make your sort of um, podcasting experience as great as possible. If you want to help us out and go there, the page is sitevisibility.com slash survey. Uh, We'd really appreciate your feedback. And again, that's sitevisibility.com forward slash survey. Today, I'm joined by Chip Conley, Strategic Advisor at Airbnb. Chip, how are you doing? I'm great. Great to be with you, Andy. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, Let's start off. uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and and what you're doing at Airbnb. Sure. Um, So I, for 30 years now, have been a hotelier, which is an interesting um, wrinkle in my career, given that I am uh, leading, helping lead Airbnb with the founders at this point for the last four years. So I I created boutique hotels, which are smaller very design-oriented hotels, uh, created a company called Joie de Vivre Hotels based in San Francisco, California. Yeah. Uh, that was 30 years ago and then created 52 boutique hotels and um, sold the company about six and a half to seven years ago to a guy named John Pritzker, whose father started Hyatt and um, have still own hotels. I still, I sold the management company and the brand, but I, and I still own about a dozen hotels. But about four years ago, the uh, the founders of Airbnb asked me to join them to help them turn their little tech startup into a global hospitality giant. Fantastic. Now, you write about psychology. Where, where does that sort of fit in with, you know, the hospitality business? Well, you know, I think the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human. I mean, we, we sort of forget that fact uh, in, as we look at org charts and we look at strategic plans and we look at budgets. Um, uh, the thing that actually sort of holds it all together is we're human beings, um, uh, whether we're a, a guest or a, uh, um, you know, an employee, um, an investor. So I um, was not a psychology major in college, but I have, there's been two major uh, economic downturns in the last uh, 15 years. Mm. One was the Great Recession a few years ago, and the one before that uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area was the dot-com bust, and then for the whole U.S., uh, post-9-11, travel to the U.S. Uh, really dropped significantly for a yeah. couple of years, and we had a recession there as well. Yeah. So interestingly, um, when I have been, uh, when I was CEO of my company, and I had 3,500 employees, I found that actually reading a psychology book was more helpful for me as a leader than it was to read a business book. And Mm. so the two psychologists that I followed that really helped me with my leadership were a guy named Abraham Maslow, who created the hierarchy of needs theory uh, about 60 years ago. And uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a psychologist in Austria, who ended up in a a concentration uh, camp with his family. They were Jewish. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. So those two uh, psychology thought leaders um, have actually influenced me and ended up leading me to writing. Um, I've written four books, but my last two books uh, were really psychology meets business books. One was called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. 
and the other one was called Emotional Equations. Wow. Now, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What's the hierarchy of needs for customers and employees? Yeah, if you would, so just a background on the hierarchy of needs, which is the theory that made uh, Abraham Maslow famous. His premise was that we, as humans, have some basic needs in life. Let's call those physiological needs. Yeah. And once those are partially met, you go up and you have safety needs to the second level. The third level is social belonging needs. The fourth level is esteem needs. And then the fifth level is what he called self-actualization or being all you can be. Yeah. If you were to take that hierarchy of needs pyramid and then translate it into something that's a little simpler with just three levels, um, there's basically three paradigms in life. There's survival uh, at, the, at the base, there's success in the middle, yeah. and then there's what I would call transformation at the top. Yeah. So that, that paradigm of what I call the transformation pyramid of survival at the base, succeed in, success in the middle, and transform at the top, if you applied that to employees, an employee uh, hierarchy of needs pyramid would have money at the base or compensation package, recognition in the middle, and meaning at the top. So the, in essence, the thing that actually creates a differentiator in a company is, um, is meaning. So, but the thing that we tend to measure and what, what can lead to an employee leaving quite often is they don't feel like they're well compensated or they're not making enough money to be able to pay their bills. That's the, the base of the pyramid. So in essence, the base of the pyramid is where the commodity happens. Mm. You got to get that right. But the companies that actually create um, the most loyal employees do it by actually addressing recognition needs and then meaning needs. Um, And similarly, uh, the the pyramid for a customer, a hierarchy of need for them uh, would be the base of the pyramid is having their expectations met. The middle of the pyramid uh, is when they have their desires met and they feel like they're successful as a result of having their desires met. Yes. They're glad they chose that company. And at the peak of the pyramid is that creates what creates transformation is when a customer has their unrecognized needs met. And what that really means, and Apple's, you know, a, a classic example of this, Apple never did focus groups. Steve Jobs didn't believe in focus groups. He yeah. basically said, listen, Customers don't really know, or they can't, they actually know, but they can't articulate very well what it is they want at the, at the peak of their pyramid. Um, he said, at best, they can tell you what their desires are. And so companies that do a great job at the top of the pyramid here of understanding unrecognized needs have created some shorthand method of understanding, you know, almost, almost be able to mind read their core customers in such a way that they deliver something to the customer that the customer really appreciated, but didn't even know would would be possible. Can you, that's amazing. Can you give me some examples of that, uh, Chip? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of one of my hotels. Um, yeah. I created a hotel in downtown San Francisco called the Hotel Vitali. Mm. This was um, we were creating this hotel 15, 16 years ago. At the time, we knew our shorthand way of understanding customers was every single one of the 52 boutique hotels we created came down to the, a basic premise, which was there's a magazine or maybe two magazines that would define the personality of the hotel we were creating. So this one hotel, so my first hotel you know, 30 years ago was a hotel called The Phoenix, and mm-hmm. it was based upon Rolling Stone magazine. Um, but years later, uh, the Vitali was a luxury hotel on the waterfront. We came up with two magazines 
um, uh, a magazine called Dwell, which is a modern design magazine, and a, a magazine called um, Real Simple, which is a lifestyle magazine about simplicity. Yeah. And the five adjectives we defined, uh, that, that, we, that we determined to find those two magazines and, and really became our touchstone for creating the hotel, were modern, urbane, fresh, natural, and nurturing. Mm. Everything we did in creating that hotel came back to those five words. The thing that we did in that hotel that addressed, we did a variety of things that addressed unrecognized needs, but let me give you one example. We chose to take 400 square feet up on the top uh, penthouse level of the hotel Mm. and and turn it into a yoga studio. Now, 16 years, 15, 16 years ago, my investors looked at me and said, are you an idiot? That's your best real estate estate in the building. You're up on the top floor. You've got great views of the bay. You've got an outdoor terrace on this particular room. It'd be a great suite. Why, Why make it into a yoga studio that's offering free yoga classes for the 200, the 200 guest rooms in the hotel. And my premise was this. If you believe uh, that modern, urbane, fresh, natural, and nurturing defines the, the personality of the hotel we're creating, it also, crea- it also is a shorthand way of understanding the psychology and personality of our core customers. Because I do believe that a great boutique hotel is, can be defined as you are where you sleep. Like so we say you are what you eat. Well, in the hotel business, I think that when you choose a hotel that is a, a you know personality-driven hotel, like a boutique hotel, yeah. it's usually because the place you want to get what I call an identity refreshment. You want the place to feel like it's rubbing off on you so that when you check out four days later, in the case of the Hotel Vitali, you'd feel a little bit more modern, urbane, fresh, natural, yes. and nurturing. Yes. So while 15 or 16 years ago, creating a financial district hotel for business people that was going to have a yoga studio on the top floor with free yoga classes sounded absurd to my investors mm. because there was never a hotel. They could, they could not find any hotel in the world that was in a financial district that was doing that, nor had any guest ever filled out a guest satisfaction survey for one of our other business class hotels and said, why is it that you don't have a yoga studio in the hotel? Yes. Um, nor, nor did any focus groups ever uh, uncover that this is something that people wanted. When we opened, I, I, get, I asked that my investors, give me six months with this yoga studio. If it doesn't work out, we'll turn it into a suite. So um, a month into it, there had been a front page article in the Wall Street Journal and in the Los Angeles Times about this line out the door of, uh, on the top floor of this hotel in San Francisco called the Hotel Vitali, where there was a collection of people every morning who wanted to take the free yoga class before going off to their business meetings. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I would say is um, the idea that, um, or, or think about Steve Jobs, go way back and say to the, you know, the iPod, mm. you know, the people who should, should have created the iPod should have been Sony. Sony had the Walkman and the Walkman, the theme of the Walkman was basically, you know, I could go out and, you know, play a CD while I'm walking or running. But so they should have been, you know, it's like having mobile music. Well, unfortunately, they got very fixated on their approach to what mobile music meant. And it it had to be, it turned out it was Steve Jobs and his team at Apple. Uh, and, and frankly, the other people who created MP, uh, MP, MP3 players, yes. Yeah, MP3 players before even Apple. Yeah. That said, listen, there's another way to do this. 
Now, it, it, it really wasn't, no one, no focus group uncovered the fact that MP3 players were something that the, the consumers of the world were, were you know, asking tech companies to do. Um, so I think that, that we, what we see over time is that innovation happens when you understand your customers so well that you're able to offer products and services to them that they would love but hadn't imagined. Yeah. So, so, yeah. You know, Henry, last thought on this is Henry Ford had a great quote long ago. Um, he said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So um, the truth <laughs> is that, you know, that was before creating, you know, the, the Model T Ford, um, yeah. the first the first car. So, you know, that's, that's you know, at the end of the day, you got to know your customer well. It's a fascinating area, this whole sort of area where um, the sort of uh, the hierarchy of needs and the, the psyche of people sort of meets marketing and how you provide services. I'm just wondering if we, if we explore the sort of area of, of how you create a loyal customer. I know we've already touched on this with sort of like appealing to the sort of the tip of that sort of hierarchy triangle. But what other things right. can you do to sort of build a, a loyal customer? Well, I think, you know if you think back to the customer pyramid that we talked about a moment ago, um, meeting expectations at the base of the pyramid for a customer creates satisfaction, uh, meeting, meeting desires, which is the middle of the pyramid creates commitment, which means loyalty, but creating, um, or meeting unrecognized needs creates evangelists. So I think the thing to know is that customers today are more promiscuous than they were 20 years ago. And I'm not talking about their sexual <laughs> yeah. uh, ways of doing. Yeah. I'm talking about the fact that um, customers today have more choices. Yeah. And the internet has created a world where customers don't need to be quite as loyal. Um, therefore, if you are just playing at the bottom of the pyramid and you're just actually going after trying to meet satisfaction, um, to be honest with you, you are not likely to create a loyal customer. Mm. So understanding desires is what creates loyalty, but it creates loyalty until such time as something else comes along and knocks their socks off. And so I think that to, to know that innovation tends to happen at the peak of the pyramid by addressing an unrecognized need a customer has. Um, and, and then over time, that unrecognized need becomes an expectation. So if it's, if it's expectations, desires, unrecognized need, over time, gravity takes hold. The idea of having Wi-Fi in the air or 15 years ago, having TV, a TV screen directly in front of you in, mm. uh, in a, a plane, these were things that when they were first in it or a fax machine, I mean, I can actually send something to someone without actually having to um, – send it, you know, in, by, by mail. Yes. Um, th these are things that were ra rather innovate, innovative, but of course we know what the fax machine put the poor fax machine. Um, it isn't loved like it used to be. Yeah. And, and things like Wi-Fi in the air become an expectation. So just know that the, the best companies tend to actually have a cycle where they actually are constantly creating and addressing the new unrecognized need knowing that it creates loyalty over time, but that someone else can come along and actually steal their customer if they actually address a, a, a more important unrecognized need. 
Now, Chip, I know that you've mentioned once or twice, I think in blog posts, about uh, data scientists and, uh, and hospitality. Why, why does hospitality need data scientists? Well, the hospitality industry <clears throat> is well-suited to become sort of a lifestyle curator. And what I mean by that is if you think of companies like Spotify and Amazon and Netflix, they've gotten really good at understanding um, you as a customer. The more you use them, the more they understand your tastes and preferences, and the more they can deliver on them. Yeah. Well, that can be true of a hospitality company as well, especially one like Airbnb, where you know choosing one, if you're going to um, to Paris and you've chosen one home or apartment over another, and you've reviewed it, we have a lot of information on you, mm. uh, which means that we can actually help um, understand your needs and your preferences. And we, and therefore, the next time you're actually going to Copenhagen, we might have enough information uh, to be able to help you uh, with your process of choosing where you're going to stay or what you're going to do, because we now actually offer trips and experiences, things to do while you're in town. So data scientists are uh, in the business of helping to understand how do you create data architecture in such a way that um, the more you use us as a customer, the better we can actually serve you. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to me, at the end of the day, what we all would love to have is a concierge just following us around and yes. <laughs> and and help helping us, you know, you know, uh, live our lives in such a way that. Uh, we only are served up choices that sort of fit our tastes and interests. And I think that's over time what the hospitality industry will do. Mm. Now, I have to ask this. I'm going to go slightly off-piste here because I'm going slightly less technical and more biographical. But, I mean, you you were a CEO for 24 years, weren't you? And then these three youngsters asked you to join Airbnb. I was just curious, sort of, how did you cope in a business where they were sort of half your age? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I've, I've been there four years now, and, and yeah. this is a, a, a question that really sort of defines my next book I'm working on called Modern Elder. I, I think if, if I'd gone into Airbnb with the premise that I was the smart old guy, uh, I was 52 when I joined, mm. um, the founders were 21 and 23 years younger than me, uh, and the average age of the employee, I was actually twice the average age of, 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 the, of the employee at Airbnb when I joined. Yeah. I think if I'd gone in thinking I'm just the smart one and the wise one and the <clears throat> person who's going to go ahead and tell you about how the bricks and mortar hospitality or hotel industry works, I they would not have listened to me. Mm. And I think I learned pretty quickly that I was both a mentor and an intern. Because the truth, truth be told, I joined a tech company at age 52 and had never been in a tech company before. So the language they were using and a lot of the thinking they had was very new to me. And so if I thought of myself as the expert and then I was sitting in meetings and not understanding what they were talking about, um, it would be really difficult because I would have tr- probably tried to double down on my expertise, which in some cases was exactly what the, a meeting did not need. Mm. What it needed was me to listen, be a cultural anthropologist and say, my God, I'm so, there's something for me to learn here. Yeah. So the reason it's, wor- it's worked so well is because I've been able to offer to the company and to the three founders, including the CEO, co-founder, Brian Chesky, who's 21 years my junior, Mm. um, I've been able to offer them a lot of wisdom around leadership, strategy, emotional intelligence. What they've been able to offer me is digital intelligence, 
um, a finger on the pulse of culture and of where millennials are and mm. probably where society is going. And so, um, in many ways, uh, and, and also, you know, what it means to be in a meritocracy, a t- a, you know, a tech company in many ways is a meritocracy. And so, um, so it's not your old school corporate, you know, or, or chart yes. and the corporate ladder. Yeah. And so it's been, I think I've learned a lot in the process. And so I think I've obviously, obviously offered a lot, but, um, I think, you know, it's been, uh, a symbiotic relationship with an, almost like an intergenerational transfer of wisdom in both directions. Sounds wonderful. So it's, it's, yeah, I suppose it's all to do with sort of remaining humble and, and being willing to learn, isn't it? The, from the youngsters, as it were. For sure. Yes, it's absolutely. It's being willing to learn, uh, knowing that you have something to offer, but they actually have something to offer in return. I, yeah. I hear from so many people my age, you know, people sort of bashing millennials. And it's like, why are you bashing millennials? You know, there's something to be learned from them. And uh, yes, and staying humble. And then at the end of the day, just knowing that, you know, um, being catalytically curious mm. is something that actually is helpful for not just yourself, but for an organization. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's all been never stopping learning as well, isn't it? Yep, yep. Well, Chip, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we go, um, tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and Airbnb. Sure. Um, Airbnb is pretty simple. It's airbnb.com uh, and that's B-N-B, uh, three uh, letters B, the letter N, and then B. Yep. Um, and for me, I'm Chip Conley, uh, chipconley.com. Conley spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y. And, um, you know, I, that those are probably the two best ways to, to learn more about me and Airbnb. Chips, thanks so much. And thanks for listening, everyone. The show notes are in the usual place, sitedivisibility.com slash podcast. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review uh, because that helps us to uh, sort of bring you better marketing ideas and advice and, and keep going. Um, plus, we're always open to questions or suggestions for future topics to be discussed. So feel free to email us on podcast at sitevisibility.com or tweet us at site visibility. Uh, if you want to connect with me personally, I'm Dr. Pod, D O C T O R P O D, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also do so by joining the Site Visibility Group on LinkedIn. Thanks again. So that's all from me, Andy, and it's all from Chip. Great. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us again, Chip. And thanks to everyone, and we'll see you next time on Internet Marketing. Bye.